We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 today. But before we uh, start here, um, pop quiz. All right, who just, and you can just say it out loud. You don't have to raise your hand. What's the first commandment? Well, yeah, so they're, they're, they're segmented out in two, two groups of commands. One is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the vertical commands that we refer to, and then the horizontal commands, love your neighbor as yourself. So under that first set of Lord, love the Lord your God, we have four commands, and the first one is have no other gods. The second one, yes, have no images or likenesses of God that we use in our worship. Uh, the third, that's right, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, which, uh, which means more than just cussing, right? In fact, that's just the tip of the iceberg on that one. It's not using his name in any way that does not reflect who he is and his will and his, his character. Uh, then the fourth one, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. All right, now, w- th- this next one really I see as kind of a transitional command. It has something to do really with both love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's, I think we think of it mostly in that love your neighbor as yourself. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your mother and father. Correct. And then, uh, then the one we did last week. Which is number six? Uh, no, not murder. It's do not murder. Yeah, do not murder. Yeah. Just want to make sure we are all on the same page on that one. Um, I, I hope I didn't misspeak that badly. Um, then this week we are on number seven, which is do not commit adultery. We're going to look at what that means and. Um, the implications of it, we're going to uh, really look at the heart of this command. And so um, I'd like to just start off with a word of prayer. Lord, as we come to you and your word, we ask that your spirit would teach us and lead us into all truth. Give us wisdom and understanding. Lord, we want to know you more completely so that we can love you and trust you more fully. Um, Lord, we know you're worthy of it. We just ask that you would bring our our hearts and minds and spirits along on this journey to draw near to you, our Lord, our Savior, uh, our Father, our Redeemer. We ask that you would teach us your ways and help us to walk in them. Um, Lord, we ask that you would combat with your word and your spirit, combat the lies of the world that have been seated within us, And root those out as we encounter your word. That what we would see would be through your eyes and through your understanding. So we ask, Lord, to help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery... um, just so we, we're all kind of on the same page, is a, is a voluntary, um, it's voluntary sexual activity 
and we'll get more into uh, the scope of what that means, because uh, it, can, it can be uh, the mind, the heart, the body that can be involved in that act. So it's the voluntary sexual activity of one married person um, with someone other than their spouse. So um, when, when any, any sexual activity, whether it's the mind, the heart, the body, uh, exists outside of the boundaries that God has set forth in marriage um, by, by one of the um, marriage uh, partners there, then, then we're in the, the realm of what the scripture is speaking to. Now, what we're going to look at is while this, this um, verse specifically deals with that marital unfaithfulness, the, what we find is as we go through the rest of Scripture, what we find is that what God, uh, in a much uh, uh, bigger picture than just the narrow scope of adultery, deals with sexual, Im- sexual immorality at large. So this, this, while this speaks directly to um, the, an adulterous act within marriage, or out, obviously going outside of the marriage covenant, it also hits upon uh, a vein that flows through Scripture of sexual immorality in general. And so we'll, we'll touch on that as well. Yahweh created mankind in His image. Male and female, it says, He created them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. If we have it up here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created mankind in his image with the distinctness of of both anatomy, um, physiology, uh, sexuality, the whole package of a person, male or female. Then he took uh, the man and the woman that he created in his image, distinctly male, distinctly female, and joined them in a covenant relationship called marriage. And he told them to be unified sexually and to produce children, and he blessed them. He established them boundaries to that marriage covenant to protect them and to protect the family that would grow out of that marriage relationship, that marriage covenant. In Genesis chapter 2, 24, God pretty quickly here defines uh, marriage and begins to set boundaries. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God here sets forth that the man is to um, have a responsible sort of independence and and exercise of of godly wisdom in um, separating from the reliance upon his parents. And then to hold fast in covenant faithfulness to his wife. And the two of them are to become one flesh to consummate that marriage with the gift that God has given them uh, of sexuality. 
Now, becoming one flesh through, through sexual intercourse joins two people far beyond just the physical. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul speaks to this in Corinthians and uh, talks about it even at a spiritual level. And so this um, a biblical sexuality is really the most intimate connection that two people can, can share on this earth. Now I say biblical sexuality because I, I want to distinguish between what God has given us by way of blessing that, have, um, that, are, that lie within the boundaries that he's set forth for us and that sexuality which lies beyond that. Biblical sexuality binds a man and a woman together, body, mind, and soul, really. That's why the language isn't just that there's sexual activity, but that it's becoming one flesh. There is a oneness, a a unity um, that goes just beyond being like-minded or something like that, sharing interests. But it goes well beyond that to unite two people. And the marriage covenant itself is really a picture of God's covenant with His people. God's passion, His faithfulness, His deep devotion and love to the people that He, in the New Testament, as we live here, that He gave His only Son to save. And so the, the, what we experience and see on this earth as in marriage is a, a picture for us to give us an idea of what God's covenant relationship is with us, His faithfulness, His devotion. How passionate He is for us and also that He desires a deep intimacy with us where we know Him and He knows us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, Verses 31 and 32, Paul taps into this example as he's um, really ta- he's talking about uh, a woman's role in a marriage and a man's role in a marriage. And then he, he kind of puts this little spin on it. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And so Paul makes this direct connection that marriage between biblical marriage between a man and a woman gives us a, a picture of how God is with his people. And in fact, in Ephesians there, it specifically speaks to men that that they're to operate like Christ does towards the church with that love and devotion, a sacrificing love. But it was this idea isn't just a New Testament idea. It's all through the Old Testament as well. Uh, in fact, you know, the ebbs and flows of, of Israel with God in that covenant relationship that He establishes with them, uh, they, there was covenant faithfulness, and then there was unfaithfulness. And here's what God, how God describes their unfaithfulness. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. 
The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. Do you see how God speaks about their unfaithfulness in their covenant relationship with Him? He calls it adultery. Now, there is, a, um, there is so much in, in the Old Testament uh, that speaks, uh, uh, that lays out guidelines, parameters, boundaries um, to guard the sexual purity of God's people and to guard their covenant faithfulness in marriage. Um, this also happens in the New Testament, that these things are reiterated. And God places a high degree of emphasis on this. And the reason that, that God calls this adultery is because when there is adulterous activity in a marriage relationship, it strikes to the heart of some of the deepest levels of trust that two people can have with one another. It's not just an offense. It's not just like someone said a took a jab at you and said a harsh word. It, it strikes at the core of who you are and, and the deepest levels of trust that two people can experience on this earth. And so God compares that, this, this unfaithfulness of Israel to him, with adultery. That here God has been faithful. God has been sacrificial. God has been redeeming God has been pursuing God has been protecting completely and wholeheartedly devoted to them and here they have struck at the heart of the covenant and and forsaken him been disloyal to him see as as um, last week we talked about murder being an assault on really God himself because Mankind was created in his image, and when there's an act of murder, it's a violent act, really, towards the image of God, which is like, which is, is a violent act towards God himself. And so it is with adultery, that as marriage is a picture of the covenant relationship uh, between God and his people, when there is covenant unfaithfulness in marriage, it is violence towards the image of of the covenant relationship God has with his people. So in that respect, there is a likeness between murder and adultery in that it attacks the very thing that represents the, the, God's awesomeness and his devotion and, and, and the power of his character and the depth of his love and faithfulness. So God set boundaries for sexuality. You know, after all, he is the one who created sexuality. He's the one who created us male and female. He's the one who then created the covenant of marriage. And so he's really the only one who has the right to set the parameters, the boundaries, and the definitions of sexuality. As Genesis 2.24 says that we looked at 
the marriage covenant is between one man and one woman, and sexual union is to occur only within that marriage covenant or becoming one flesh. So any sexual behavior outside of God's biblical design and intent, we would call sin. It's a violation of God's design and intent and command. Biblical sexuality, and I want you to, I want you to hear this and I want you to think deeply on this. Because the world's message is very different than what I'm about to say. Very different. Biblical sexuality produces unity, life, and sinful sexuality or ungodly sexuality produces division and death. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, uh, you had me there for a minute and now you just went over the top by saying it produces division and death. Hear me out. Consider the fruit of biblical sexuality. That is, sexuality that happens within the boundaries that God has set forth. Remember the Ten Commandments um, uh, I mentioned are like, like runway lights that help give us the markers for where God's blessing lays. Okay, So God's blessing is here. The markers run on each side of it and show us, hey, you step over that, you step outside of God's blessing. So consider the fruit of biblical sexuality. Love, I don't think we would disagree with that. Joy, security, trust, new life. Babies, grandbabies. Consider the fruit of sinful or ungodly sexuality. I mean, I don't even really have to tell you this. You know it. You see it. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. Pain, sorrow, rejection, perversion, exploitation, child molestation, rape, disease, conflict, murder. Now, I'm sure you could list off several others, and under murder, I would add abortion. These are things that ultimately are the fruit of ungodly sexuality. Now, I don't say this to point my finger at somebody and and tell them what a horrible human being they are. I say this just as a matter of fact that it's what's presented to us in God's word and it's what we see in real life. If we we say anything other than that, we're, we're just lying to ourselves. When we see a model of biblical sexuality... Um, being lived out, we see love and unity. We see two people who protect one another, look out for each other's best interest. We, we see two people who are invested in, in whatever blessing of, of children that may come along with that, or grandchildren. We, we see these things present. We see life-giving things coming out of that relationship and covenant. And the things that ultimately flow out of ungodly sexuality are a stark contrast to that. You and I, we live in the same world. I know I'm not the only one that sees it, clearly. Even if God's word didn't spell it out for me, 
I can see it being lived out in the lives of real people. I see the real hurt, the real destruction it does to real people. And the really difficult thing is that it seems that it is the most vulnerable in our society that pay the biggest price for ungodly sexuality. The Old Testament speaks at such great lengths about sexual purity to really protect people and help them stay within the, within the boundaries of God's blessing. God has blessed sexuality when it happens within the boundaries he set forth, that protection. And so all through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we see quite a lot of time spent God dealing with his people, helping them to understand where the parameters are for sexuality. The New Testament does so as well, urging Christians to guard their sexual purity and their marital faithfulness. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That is, he's speaking to Christians. That's who he's referring to as saints here. Everyone who says they are a follower of Christ. Let there be no filthiness. So, so look at, so he said no sexual immorality or impurity. Okay? Now look at what he says here. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He did not change here, and for us is verse 4. To Paul it was just the next sentence. But um, he, he's not changing thoughts here from verse 3 to verse 4 with like, oh yeah, and uh, no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. This is part of verse 3. That sexual immorality can happen beyond just the physical act of sex, sex act, uh, sexual activity, but also in the heart and in the mind. For you, verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, it speaks specifically about a spouse violating that marriage covenant by sexual behavior or pursuit outside of the marriage covenant. But Matthew chapter 5, Jesus really kind of gives a greater understanding to that. Matthew 5, verse 27. That adultery happens at the heart level first. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know what Jesus does here? He takes it, he, he, he reveals the heart of the command of God. Where, you know, the rich, if you remember the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and said, hey, uh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, ah, you know the commands, right? He says, yeah, I've done them all. 
I haven't committed adultery. Well, Jesus makes clear to those who would, who would just make the Ten Commandments a checklist of, yep, I haven't murdered and I haven't committed adultery. He's, he's just made it clear that what God is speaking to happens at the heart level first. In fact, Scripture says that, that it's, it, the heart is where sin begins before it is outwardly act upon, acted upon. And so he says, you've heard it, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So while Matthew, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, specifically addresses that marriage covenant purity, it represents really the whole of Scripture speaking to sexual purity. And that has to do with whether you're married or unmarried. Whether you're married or not married, we're to pursue sexual purity. So this includes uh, sex before marriage, outside of marriage. It includes things like pornography, uh, lust. It includes homosexuality. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks with the Corinthians. It was one of the major things that Paul addressed. There was a lot of uh, sexual immorality in Corinth. And Paul is speaking to the believers to help them understand um, this very thing. That, that God's, God has blessed the marriage relationship and God has blessed sexuality so long as people walk in his ways. And when they wander outside of that, there are some severe consequences. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a pretty, God speaks much more severely to this, much more pointedly to this uh, than the world does. God's design and command for biblical sexuality has the promise of his blessing. But the world will tell you that sex is entertainment. Sex is for personal fulfillment and gratification and satisfaction. That's what sexuality is about. It's a personal thing that you get to exercise in your own way. But sex is not entertainment. It's not a means for personal fulfillment or satisfaction. How many lives have been wrecked or destroyed, filled with sorrow and pain because of adultery or uncontrolled, ungodly, unbiblical sexual activity and behavior? Um, it was like uh, an appointment from God this morning. As I was coming to church, I just happened to bump into a friend of mine who, who works for a police department who is way too familiar with the effects of uh, ungodly sexuality. And he was shared some of that with me. Just even here locally, how disastrous and how, how pervasive 
this kind of thing is affecting lives of the people that we see every day. The s- some of the things that he shared with me are just, they're, they're just heart-wrenching and heartbreaking. And then for him to say that this is, like there's no end to the work that he could do in, in uh, trying to follow all, all, all the, the, the case load that, that falls from this. We're kidding ourselves if we can in any way get to the point where we say that un, an unbiblical sexuality has anything good to offer to us personally or to us as a people. It may seem, the world will say, the compassionate thing to just let people do as they will and say nothing about it. Let people determine for themselves what is right. But we see the effects and the fallout of it all around us. Psalm 82, verse 3 and 4 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. We have a responsibility to protect. And this has a lot to do with it. Sexual, uh, ungodly sexual activity, just it wrecks lives starting from the very young. Satan is working overtime to so corrupt and twist sexuality to, to, uh, as to make it unrecognizable from the holy, sacred, and blessed thing that it is by God. And the church, you and I, we need to protect what God has established as biblical sexuality for your well-being for the well-being of those you love, for the well-being of your church family, for the well-being of our community, for the well-being of the people that we are trying to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. Because sexual sin, Satan is using that in such a powerful way right now. So I want to leave you with three things that I think we can we we ought to be about the business of as it relates to this. The first one is pursue sexual purity and covenant faithfulness personally. So you wherever whether you're married or unmarried or whether you're a, a teenager or, or whether you're 70 years old that you pursue a personal sexual purity both in your mind, in your heart, and with your body that is in line with what God has laid out for us. That we walk within the boundary of His blessing and that we have a testimony to give to the world around us, something to offer to them that gives hope. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 Looks like I'm going to look that one up because I didn't put it up here. 
Colossians 3, 5 and 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, speaking to believers. And then list, he lists off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, Apostle Paul, when he writes to um, the Colossians here and saying to put these things to death, he recognizes that our sinful desire within us, if it is unbridled, unchecked, uncontrolled, un, uh, uh, if it is allowed to run free without being confronted by God's word and brought into alignment with, with, with God's design and intent, then where it leads us is sexual immorality, impurity, that passion and evil desire and covetousness that ends with with the fruit that just destroys. So the first one is for us to pursue sexual purity and covenant faithfulness in our marriage personally. And the second one is to reject Satan's lie that we have the right to define our own sexuality or set our own boundaries for sexuality. We do not. We are watching the effects of that unfold as we speak. That when humanity tries to define that which God has created and put their own boundaries on that which God has created, we just make a mess of it. And the effects are, we're going to watch it play out, unfortunately, for generations now. We do not have the right to define our own sexuality. We do not have the right to set our own boundaries for sexuality or marriage. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Matthew 19, 4. Jesus says to the Pharisees, see, they were challenging him on this thing about divorce which we're not, we're not going into today, but uh, what Jesus says about divorce has a lot to do with sexual morality and, and uh, the unbridled desires of mankind to seek to justify their own sin. And so when he's approached about um, whether divorce was lawful or not, he, he responds this way. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now watch what he says. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What Jesus says is this covenant relationship between a male and female that God has created with that distinctness cannot now be redefined or, or tampered with with mankind, by mankind. The third thing is this, that we as believers who are seeking to walk before God with sexual purity, whether we're in our marriage in a marriage covenant or not, that we teach by word and by example about God's perfect design and intent for sexuality and marriage. 
Look at Proverbs chapter 5. You know, if, you, if you're a... Um, Proverbs, the first few chapters of Proverbs are a father pleading with his son, listen to me, son. I'm giving you words of life if you will walk in them. Listen to me. Listen to the words of your mother. If you walk in them, they'll lead you in the path of life. And one of the big focuses of the words that he imparts to his son has to do with sexual purity. How quickly a young man or a young woman can get sucked off course and down a destructive path by giving way to sexual temptations. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1, he says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. See, the enticement of sin gives us all kinds of glamorous promises for fulfillment. And in the end, it will leave us even worse than lacking. It will be the very thing that begins to unravel us and destroy us. If those of us who say we love Christ will guard our marriages and will guard our sexual purity, we can really be a light in this dark world. A world full of despair and pain because of the effects of ungodly sexuality. And we have the opportunity to give them hope to remind them of God's blessing and where it, where it can be found. But what I'm speaking to most is that hope that can only be found in Christ. Because there is a reality that um, none of us can stand on some kind of pedestal and say, yeah, I'm the sexually pure. I'm the one who's never had an issue. I'm the one who's just been perfect in this. But what we all recognize is that every single one of us stand guilty before God and need his forgiveness and grace. And he's offered that to everybody, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what, where you, what you've been through. No matter how disgusting humanity might think you are in whatever act you may have done, the Lord looks at you and says, you need forgiveness and I died on the cross for you. His life, a sacrifice for every one of us. Every sin was paid for at the cross. Every sinner will find forgiveness at the cross. Every person dead in their sins will find new life at the cross. And as if we were maybe as believers to forget where we came from and how we got to where we're at, Paul reminds the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 1, in fact, I'll have you turn there with me if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. Sometimes, sometimes as believers, we can kind of forget where we came from. We can kind of forget how deeply we needed God's grace. And sometimes our finger starts to come up and starts to wag at other people that we see sinning, huh? 
But look what the Apostle Paul reminds us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So while God sets the parameters for sexuality, he has also he has also made a way for those who walk outside of that to receive forgiveness and life. To have what was broken begin to be restored by the very one who created us. That is a pretty powerful, incredible love that God has for us. And he's offered it to each one of us who would call out to him for forgiveness and for life. In 1 John, John says that if we, are, if we will confess our sins to him, because this, you know, believers get sucked into this too. We set off on our course saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you like Peter. Lord, I'll follow you to my death. And then we find ourselves getting sucked in old patterns of sin but john says if we will confess our sins he is faithful he is just he will forgive our sins and purify us from that so if that happens to be you today and you've been sucked into some of the old patterns of sin god offers you to step off the train now by confessing your sin to him asking for his forgiveness and then trusting him to purify you, begin to purify you and change your way of thinking to be in line with his that you might walk in the path of his blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Lord, every one of us deserves your wrath. We have all sinned against you and your word says that we all deserve death. But then you remind us that even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins against you, you sent your son to give his life for us on the cross that we might have forgiveness through him and eternal life. Lord, teach us how to walk in your ways, to do the good works that you have created us to do. Lord, help us to be a shining light in a dark world that has so much hopelessness and despair, so much anger, and resentment. 
because we've wandered off course and outside of the boundaries of your blessing that we have stopped looking to you. We have stopped trusting in you. We have stopped believing that our Creator loves us more than Satan, your enemy, than what the world has to offer us. So Lord, help us to walk in your ways, to be a shining light on a hill, to give grace to those who are dead in their sins, to bring them the message of the cross, that they would find forgiveness just as we did. Lord, we surrender this to you and we ask that you would help us to surrender every part of us, including our sexuality, to you. That we would seek to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, uh, that father who was um, speaking to his son, I think he would agree with this. Proverbs chapter, chapter 6. Well, I mean, he, he speaks it to his son. He says, um, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Stern warnings for treading outside the boundaries that God has set for us. Here's a beautiful thing. If you flip over uh, past Proverbs into this book called Song of Solomon, you will see biblical sexuality uh, and, and get a whole new picture of it. Because what God laid out is a tremendous blessing that is so fulfilling and unifying in a, in a marriage covenant if we operate within the protective bounds that God has given us. Our Father loves us. He created us. He knows how these machines work best. Let's listen to the one who wrote the owner's manual here. He knows what he's talking about, and he loves us. So the Lord bless and keep you. My encouragement to you, walk in his ways, especially as it concerns your, your uh, sexuality. And, and don't be afraid. This world will tell you you better be afraid of speaking the truth. Don't be afraid of speaking the truth. Just do it with grace and lead people to the cross. It is not wrong to say that ungodly sexuality is wrong. It's just wrong to do it with a wagging finger and a condemnation spirit. But rather, as a humble servant of Christ, lead them to the cross, laying out the truth, and letting God deal with that person directly rather than you putting yourself in the seat of judgment. Lord, bless and keep you as you walk in his ways. Amen.